0: Tina Koto, welcome to Teheringa Waka's Distinguished Alumni Podcast Series. In this series, we have matched senior academics and distinguished alumni to discuss how they got to where they are now and what they think about current issues. In this podcast, Professor James Renwick talks to climate change activist Lisa McLaren. Lisa McLaren was national convener of the Zero Carbon Act campaign for Generation Zero and is one of New Zealand's leading advocates for a Carbon Zero in New Zealand.
1: Lovely to see you, Lisa. And first of all, congratulations. I think it's really awesome that you're one of Victoria University of Wellington's distinguished alumni this year. So well-deserved. Oh. So, um, yeah, congratulations.
0: Thank Thanks. It was definitely a surprise. A big shock.
1: Oh, well, great. <laughs> I thought we might start off by just talking a little bit about your life, I suppose. Your journey to get where you are today so how, how did you get to where you are today and, and where have you come from?
0: Yeah okay um well I'm a farm girl from the Upper. I um yeah grew up on a sheep and beef farm there and sort of always loved being outdoors and school really loved learning so went on to Vic Uni and did environmental studies and anthropology as undergrads and then took a bit of a gap year took some time off, did a bit of travel and then decided um, actually due to my last paper here at Victoria that it was a climate change paper uh, several weeks over summer, just immersed in learning about climate change and I thought oh wow, okay, this is big, (laughs) I need to learn more about this so I came back to Victoria University uh, and did my master's in climate change education, and tried to work out what new ways there are for educating around a wicked problem such as climate change. So, mm. yeah, then bounced off into into local government for a while. was at Wellington City Council, and I actually got into the council through a summer scholarship from Vic Cuny as well, looking at sea level rise mm. for the region, and then uh, moved into Remo, so the Wellington Region Emergency Management Office. <laughs> so took on the, like the the climate impacts side I guess, the flooding, the landslides, learned about how, how we manage those and then eventually ended up doing a PhD around uh, climate change and, and how we uh, engage communities in that space and that's what I'm in the final few months of so forgive me if my brain's a bit mushy <laughs> and then I guess on the side of all of that I was doing climate activism so going to the UN climate talks as a as a youth delegation and trying to stir up some action that way. So, yeah, it's been a busy decade.
1: Wow. (laughs) It certainly has, hasn't it? And and I really remember that over the last several years, sort of seeing you popping up in different places. I was meeting with people, oh, oh, there's Lisa McLaren, oh, here's Lisa McLaren. Yeah, just
0: a climate nerd (laughs) from the start.
1: So would you say the study you did at Victoria led you to your... Work with uh, Generation Zero around the, the Zero Carbon Act. Is that what got you started?
0: Yeah, definitely. So learning about what climate change is um, and, and how devastating it's going to be. Both, I guess it is already now, it's impacting people now and and even more so into the future. So I came at the sort of climate change problem from a very academic sense. There's a lot of privilege in that. There's so many people around the world coming at at this problem because their life is on the line, their family, mm. their, their livelihoods. So definitely know that I've, I've taken a more academic route to that, which I guess is is why a lot of people jump into activism. It's that, that sense of needing to take action but not knowing quite how, mm. if you're not directly related to, to the problem in many ways. Although all of us of course are, are causing it through our, our daily actions anyway, through you know, living, driving. It's how our society is structured through fossil fuels. But yeah, so the study at VIC and, and especially the masters at the School of Environment that led into me knowing more about the problem and unfortunately wanting to tell many, many other people about the problem so they can have the same nightmares that I have. <laughs> at night <laughs> unfortunately that's that's the curse with this role is that you uh, you you have to kind of share that horrible tale but also try and share hope that's been a lot of my motivation over the last several years is that kind of fear of what's coming whereas now I guess it's more an acceptance of things are bad but I've only got one option and that's to try
1: exactly right I think we could all say that and it's true for everybody we can mm. try we can do whatever we can and the work you did with Generation Zero obviously was really successful. We have a, an actual piece of legislation, <laughs> the Zero Carbon Act now. And, and a climate, a climate change. mission. <laughs> yes, indeed, which is doing great work, of yeah, course. Of course. So it's really amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think NGOs have had a major role in the conversation in the last few years. Yeah. I was wondering, I mean, I think Generation Zero has been really effective. Do you see that continuing into the future, or what do you think the actions or activism of a group like Generation Zero will look like over the next decade or so?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting space at the moment. So I guess over the last the last 10 years or so, there have been uh, many different groups working in the climate change space and Generation Zero is a group of young people um, who work more in the policy space. They have that sort of policy niche and there are lots of others doing various types of activism, the more picket line sort of protesting styles and then Mm -hmm. other community-based organizing. So I think the space is getting busier and busier as more people are working out that this is a real problem and and trying to fix it. A lot of community-based groups are getting mobilized around it. I think groups like Generation Zero, so we developed this this blueprint for a law and then handed it to government and said, please do this. (laughs) And we got to that point because we didn't really know what else to do. Continuous governments of any political um, side were failing on climate change and failing to reach the level of ambition that we thought they needed. So there was frustration, I guess, that kind of led us to that. And I think that sort of role of of developing things will continue because, I mean, we're seeing it now, there's just so many different pieces of legislation or regulation that are coming out. There needs to be people looking at that and saying, is this going to get us where we need to go to? The same within the business sector. There are so many greenwashed or false solutions to this stuff that there needs to be people there saying, hang on a minute, sounds great, but actually you're going to do way more harm than good. So that's where I see the role of these NGOs and community groups is to say, cool, yeah, on the surface that sounds like a great solution but actually you're going to perpetuate more harm and you can continue this cycle of inequities. Without that, I don't know what kind of uh, emissions reduction plan we would have. So, yeah, mm. there's, there's definitely ways that we can solve climate change that will, will hurt a lot of people.
1: Indeed, yeah. And the challenge, I think, is to tackle the problem in a way that doesn't hurt a lot of people. It can actually reduce the inequalities exactly. we have at the moment. Yeah, and and taking a... A role of monitoring what's going on and you know how how real the the pledges and so on the actions are is, is really important. So that, that
0: sounds yeah. great. I think getting yeah. um, kind of being an interpreter often between government or local councils and the public because hmm. um, those organisations are often big. They might have big budget, but they're trying to reach a lot of people. So groups um, in their NGO space can actually connect in with their networks and interpret what these policies mean, like how they'll physically change the, the city or the road or, and, and what that will mean for the residents or communities in them. So I think that's another really important role, is that interpreter of science, interpreter of, of policy and also helping those communities create their own vision of what that right. transition to a, a low-carbon economy or a no-carbon economy, what that will look like for them so they can have a say.
1: Yeah, and that's really important. If communities don't have any ownership of what's proposed, it's not going to go anywhere, is it? So exactly. people have to have to take it on board and believe in what they're doing. It doesn't have to be absolutely everybody, but there's got to be...
0: <laughs> no, yeah. no, there needs to be a lot more climate change education, especially in our rural communities. Moving back to the family farm in the last few years, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I think that's where universities play a really key role. Is teaching, especially our young people, but anyone that wants to to go to university, that critical thinking. How do you take a piece of information and really dissect it and say, wait, hang on a minute, this YouTube video just told me this thing, (laughs) maybe I should think a little bit more about whether that's true or not. We're seeing that with the vaccine hesitancy, I guess, from many people, and we see that, we've seen that for decades with climate change. How do you teach people to, to think about where that information is coming from and, and why someone might be telling them that? And that's some of the key skills I, I learnt at Victoria.
1: And it's something I think about quite a lot. How can mm. how can this university, how can Victoria University of Wellington be a force for good in the community outside? And is that is that what you're saying? That it's about communicating with the public or
0: I definitely think communicating with the public, communicating with people that that researchers are going out and talking to, engaging with, especially uh, more practical types of research projects. But I guess preparing students for these problems that they're going to have to solve outside of academia because the majority of students won't be staying within the system. There's just not enough jobs. So To me, it's allowing students to come alive within that academic process. And to latch onto that really cool need for learning and to unpick problems that they can then apply outside. And if you do that really well as an institution, then our central government is going to look a lot different.
1: So something you mentioned earlier, Lisa, all the roles you've had have been about communicating on climate change and to different audiences, different aspects. But you mentioned looking for different ways to communicate. And I know you've Mm -hmm. been involved in the Track Zero Trust, which is designed to bring the arts and the sciences together so that arts can tell the story of climate change. What's your view of of the work of that trust?
0: I, um, first of all, love Track Zero Trust. Um, (laughs) I have to tell you that as a fellow board member. But it's to me, you can't just communicate with facts. I think... Some people really resonate with facts and give them a a list or a a spreadsheet to follow and that's their thing. And that's fine. It's definitely not me. Uh, Numbers aren't my thing. I'm a social scientist (laughs) Uh, with a very qualitative lens. But I think if you can connect through story, through images, photos, if you can connect with people's everyday lives with these issues, then they're more likely to relate to them, I think... One right. of the issues that we've had with climate change and, and the, uh, the spokes examples of that was polar bears. <laughs> 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 and that was a real thing around save the polar bears, the, the Arctic smelting and legit, sure. But uh, it's not something that the everyday Kiwi on the street is going to, to relate to in a really genuine way. Uh, unless they're a super animal lover, in which case that's great. but it's it's trying to find creative ways of connecting those people in whatever whatever community or group they're part of to the issue. So to me, music, poetry, those things that really tug on your heartstrings, are are the things that that can inspire action more so than me being handed, no offence, the latest IPCC findings of science. And it's incredibly important because that's the basis for the story. That's the reason that the countries around the world are are meeting every year uh, at things like COP, that they haven't given up, is because we have that science basis. But that science basis means nothing to people on the street who think that the greenhouse effect... Is literally about greenhouses like this is it's it's real they literally yeah, do yeah. think it's about greenhouses because they have no idea and I don't I can't count the conversations I have had around well just think of the earth being wrapped in a blanket and that's like a greenhouse and you know that sort of thing but we forget especially when we're working in a space for a while that all the stuff we talk about goes straight over the head of most people and I'm like that with other types of science and, and engineering. I, when I go to engineering conferences, a lot of it goes over my head. So I get it. But art is a place where a lot of people can meet because it, it's acronym neutral and it's technical speak neutral. It's this place where you, you can just come as a human being and absorb something in a way that, again, it, it goes to your heart rather than whatever you're trying to do in your brain um, to, to make it sit within your field. So, yeah, that's why I really love the fact that there are, there are groups that are looking at, at the artistic comms side. You have to connect with so many different communities too. The art is one that can can span different communities or alternatively it can actually really target a community from within their own artistic people and mm. tell their story in their way. And I think that's especially um, important for frontline communities who are impacted first and worst by this stuff, as same with Indigenous communities. We're seeing a lot of that starting to get more airtime now, which is great, because they've been here from the start of this fight.
1: Wow, fantastic answer. So you've had, yeah, quite quite a career already, studying here, and you've been out into central and local government, uh, and then... Back at university doing a PhD, uh, all I guess with the theme of your action on climate yeah. change as well as the activism and so on. So, uh, what motivates all this? What motivates you? <laughs> what what gets you out of bed in the morning?
0: Well, my dog, because <laughs> it's 6 a.m. It is wake up time. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't have a choice. But uh, I think it changes on the day. Some days, as I mentioned earlier, it's that like fear of what's going to happen. I've often talked about the last few years of if I have kids um, I'm early thirties now, so it's you know, it's on the brain. <laughs> um, is if I have kids what what have I done to help? Because the challenges they face are so, so different to previous generations. And every generation has had their thing. Many things. If you're from an indigenous culture you've had even more <laughs> cultural and, and structural oppression. So my kids will be okay. But I want to know that I have done as much as I can for them and and all their peers. So that's definitely one motivation. I talk to a lot of grandparents and and grandparents that never saw themselves getting into activism, and that's now that's their way in as their grandkids trying to talk to them. Like, yes, you were part of the system, but that's okay. You now have to pivot <laughs> and and right. change and change that. And you you have you have time and and. You have more power than a lot of us uh, young people. Uh, I'm now youth-adjacent. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess, so that is, that's a main driver. But personally, I don't know how you can learn about it and then not want to change it. I've always, you know, over the last few years, thought, okay, I'll do a few years in the climate space and then I'll go on and do the other things I wanted to do. So be a diplomat or whatever. It was on the on my horizon before I went, well, when I went to my first negotiations in Poland actually the first cop as I wanted to go there and be a, ne- a negotiator and then I saw how rigged mm. the system was and I was like nope <laughs> nope so i think fear but but hope i see the young people coming through who are so much more clued up than i am so so much more clued up around climate justice social justice and issues they just think differently about the world and they don't have many of the same prejudices and, and other things that are deeply embedded in even my generation and, and one's prior. And so they give me a lot of hope. The gritters of the world, but also we have so many, so many young people here who are, are willing to really put a line in the sand and say, OK, the country has been part of this problem, but we don't have to be going forward.
1: Yeah, you you must have, have met an awful lot of interesting people in the course of all the things you've done the last decade and more. But can you say who who particularly inspires you?
0: Uh, I meet people who inspire me every week. There there are new people coming through to the space who who are, who are amazing, and I s- have also started to really appreciate scientists and academics who have, like yourself who have been working in the space for so long. No, offense, I don't mean it like that. In in your careers, and and you're having to actually navigate this really tricky world of academic structures and hierarchy and also, in some ways, activism. And that's also, it's, it's been a place that's been contentious within many university systems for, for a long time. And so yep. we're now seeing overseas and here uh, academics actually saying climate change is a really significant issue and seeing people who would never take a policy side before taking a policy side. And we're seeing academics writing op-eds that call out governments, and, and that's never really been a safe space, I don't think, for many academics to do that. So mm-hmm. that really inspires me. And then I guess in particular there's some young people who inspire me. Uh, a very good friend of mine, India Logan Riley, they're one of, uh, yeah, just a really good friend. And they uh, co-started the youth uh, climate activism group Te Fatu. So they're a group of uh, young uh, Māori and Pacific uh, activists and they do some amazing work in a space that is culturally unsafe a lot of the time. So they're balancing a whole bunch of different structural oppressions around racism, especially in spaces like the international negotiations, but also uh, here at home. And navigating fear and grief around loss of cultural lands, and especially around uh, sea level rise and marae based on the coast, and navigating these two worlds as well around intermaldi politics and iwi politics, and and also the government, New Zealand, sort of the Pakia government space. So. Those sort of people I take my hat off to, they're, they're a huge inspiration and have this added burden um, and responsibility that, that many of us in the space don't have. And um, so we try and learn from that, I guess. It's quite hard. I guess myself coming from a rural community, quite conservative, I came from a, a middle-class background, didn't know a lot about social justice issues entering the space. So all the solutions that I entered the space with were based on that lens. And so it's taken a long time for me and this is why I think the younger generation are catching up so much quicker is their their values and their actions are aligned a lot more. Mm, And I think they're braver (laughs) in many ways. Um, Climate change itself is now such a recognised issue. I remember when I started having conversations around the dinner table with friends of my family about, no, it's not real, it's the sun or it's a greenie conspiracy. And so all the climate communications things that i I've, I've learned is from that <laughs> it's from having to defend it for so many years so it's it is a really nice space now that generally most people are on board but that's taken the work of all these people to get it to this place
1: so one thing I'd love to ask and you know when, when you're not out there helping to save the world you know what, what do you do in your spare time if you have spare time <laughs> or downtime what what do you like to do
0: Spare time. <laughs> what is this thing you talk about? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> um, I think when I first started and probably right through convening the Zero Carbon Act space, uh, that, so the campaign, that was four years. So until very recently, I'd spare time was climate change. It was activism. And that's a coping mechanism that a lot of young people are, are doing. Mm. And so it's taken me a while after the campaign. So we're two years, um, two years have passed now. And it's taken me that time to realise that, that it is a coping mechanism. It's something I'm looking at in my PhD around action coping. You're, you're taking action to try and cope with this really heavy stress and worry um, that you're seeing everywhere, Facebook my Facebook feed is full of, of climate change. The news is now full of climate change. Discussions around the pub table are now climate change. So because it's this continuous, like, barrage of information and, and a lot of the information is really heavy and sad, this coping mechanism, this, like, need to take action is is really prevalent and, it, and we're seeing it with a lot of the young people coming through. So it's how you take a pause on that and say, what what am I doing to make, to make sure that I'm still a an okay human at the same time and so for me that's getting a dog because my dog means that I have to get outside and get walks and 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 it's something cute and fluffy and joyful and (laughs) and and that's been yeah it's been great um meditation another thing I've had to do to start kind of processing this stuff but yeah all the hobbies that I had pre pre pre-climate change kind of went out the window and that's been two years of trying to claw some of that back and make it habit again, but I'm um, definitely not alone. If you talk to a lot of of young people that are in the space, it does consume you, because you're you're literally talking about the fate of billions of people, and that feels it feels like a pressure. Yes, and rightly sure. so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's my next next thing is how do we get young people working in the space that doesn't continuously burn them out?
1: That's right. I mean. That drive to take action to be doing something mm. useful is really motivating. But yeah, it's that that question about not not getting too weighed down, not not despairing. I suppose. Really. Yeah,
0: and I guess one of the good things with it though is it it often creates a sense of community. So groups, yeah. uh, the, some of the youth climate groups, it does create a a space where people can talk about the stuff and they can share their problems and share their worries. And and you're doing a a collective action of sorts. So our, our Zero Carbon Act campaign was a, a collective action to try and pass this, this climate law. And that sense of community that came from that is really inspiring and addictive and you, you want to be part of it <laughs> and, and keep, keeps you going. So mm. yeah, there's, there's definitely benefits, um, but it, it's realizing that this problem isn't going away. So we're gonna keep fighting this fight for the next you know few decades at least.
1: Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. How do you feel about the future? Are you optimistic or pessimistic or a bit of both?
0: <laughs> it depends on the day. It really mm. depends on the day. And it, and it depends on the scale. Here in Aotearoa, I think we have a really good chance of turning things around. We have that number eight wire mentality. It can be um, yeah, flexible, small enough population. The problem is we're not. Not enough on the scale that we need and not enough to account for the historic and current responsibilities to developing nations. We're relatively rich in comparison. We have the ability to turn the stuff around using a just transition model. We're not seeing the political will yet. We're seeing incremental changes and changes that are now going in a good direction. And we were quite clear with ourselves from the start of the Zero Carbon Act campaign that it was just an overarching framework. And it was one that if anything could get cross-party support, which it did end up doing, it would be that. Because it's very non-political. It's just saying we have to reduce our emissions. And this is how much by. Uh, it's not saying the underlying policies, <laughs> which is some of the work no. that you are um, now tackling. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure we can do it. It's Are we doing it fast enough? And are we doing it in a way that's, that's helping the rest of the world as well? I don't think we can just reduce our emissions to the, the basic level that we need to do, and then call it a win. And I and I mean that of all developed countries, Yes. our lifestyles are built on on this fossil fuel related industry, and we need to wean ourselves off it, essentially.
1: <laughs> we certainly do. That's
0: and that's that's hard. That's a hard sell for people who have have got this lifestyle. And especially those who have come here seeking this lifestyle as well, then turning around and saying, actually, you know, this, this Kiwi dream you're after, we're, we're going to have to dial that back. So it's mm. it's trying to find a way to make this future palatable. Yes. Um, yeah. And to sell it in a way that doesn't mean that we're going back in time. It's just a new normal for the future. And we've seen that with COVID. We've very quickly fallen into a new normal might feel very strange but it's definitely cut my carbon miles (laughs) and and in the ways I interact with friends and family so we've seen that we can do stuff quickly if we want to and if there is a significant enough driver a pandemic was enough for people to get on board with that but somehow climate change isn't and so it's it's how and and one of those (laughs) is significantly more scary to (laughs) me (laughs) because of its you know the impacts it will have for, for millennia. So I'm hopeful, but I think it's going to be be a challenge. And then, of course, all this stuff is based on my values. And people with right. other values have a very different yes. um, view on this. So for me, it's how do I convince them that their values are actually going to be hurtful to people? <laughs> and for them, it's convincing me that I'm just a, a radical greenie and I don't know anything about business. So, no. <laughs> So in summary, I'm hopeful. Right. quietly hopeful
1: very good and i think <laughs> well i guess if you weren't you might have dropped out of this
0: oh, yeah. area a long time ago oh absolutely i would have um yeah headed for the hills long ago mm. or, or made a lot of money in, in fossil fuel industry on the way out i guess
1: yeah uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you've got a joke about this stuff otherwise it's so so depressing <laughs>
1: It is. We've built this amazing, Mm. well, in in developed countries, this quality of life, you might say, or technological civilization, which has all sorts of incredibly good things about it. Mm -hmm. Just unfortunate that there's this side effect that burning all of this fossil fuel that powers everything changes the climate. If it didn't do that wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, and we'd
0: want to be getting everyone up to the same standard of of living and and reducing diseases and reducing poverty. And we want to be able to do this transition in a way that that doesn't wipe out all those gains.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: We can't um, expect people to do this uh, in a way that's going to harm their communities. Right. So it's it's finding that balance between do you really need all that stuff you just bought at the warehouse that's made of fossil fuels – versus, like, I'm sorry, but your entire community's income needs to be cut. (laughs) Like, there's different scales to this.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's all relative. And I know that global emissions of greenhouse gases have roughly doubled since Mm. roughly 1990 in the last 30-odd years. So if we wanted to halve emissions, we'd be going back to... Living the way we did in the late nineteen eighties, which wasn't exactly everyone in a cave. It was, as I remember, (laughs) it it was fairly civilized, actually.
0: (laughs) Well, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's when I was born, late eighties. Right. So our generation doesn't know, or my generation, millennials, I guess, and and younger, we don't know any different. Hmm. And that's a really that's another hard sell, as we've we've Hmm. grown up within this um, capitalistic, individualized economy where you, you try and you be the best and you make the most money and you make the most profit. So a lot of the solutions that we bring to the table are based in that, uh, which is why going back to the action coping thing said earlier, not all actions are, are good actions and um, not all solutions are good. So I'm finding more and more checking in around um, Indigenous-led actions is a really, really solid way uh, to to not perpetuate some of these inequalities.
1: Indeed. Uh, thanks, Lisa, for your time today. It was a really interesting discussion.
0: To stay up to date with our latest podcasts,
1: subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Kauke School of Music alumni, Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, haere rā.